right, good morning, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started today. <clears throat> Ms. Laura's passed out her prayer request list. We don't have anything new on here from last week. Uh, do, do want to remind you to be in prayer for the upcoming missions jubilee that we'll be having here <clears throat> in the next several weeks, and then be faithful in praying for the other prayer requests that are listed on here. Several significant um, health prayer requests. Yes, ma'am. Amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord for that. So good report there on Miss Cassie Stone's prayer request that uh, father-in-law has gone home. So praise the Lord for that. All right. Anything else? All right. Let's open up in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this opportunity that we are able to come together um, to fellowship and unity in your house and pray that you would bless this time. We pray for Sunday school. We pray for the service to come. Uh, Lord, that you would have your perfect will in our lives, that we'd be responsive and obedient to you and your voice in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you would, open up to John chapter number one, and we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to be looking at days number three and four in, uh, in the study of the life of Christ. So if you recall the last several weeks, or when we got started, it was more of a general overview of the, uh, of the kind of the timeline of Jesus and when he was living and some of the important change that had taken place specifically whenever we leave them in the old testament they're under uh what would be called the greek rule and now they're under the rule of the romans several other things have changed as well we looked at uh, who christ was what he did kind of his main uh his main activities from day to day and a few weeks ago we started looking at a day-by-day study of the life of christ if you recall day one was the baptism of jesus by john the baptist Day number two that we looked at last week was the temptation after 40 days in the wilderness. And today, uh, we're going to be covering days three and four. We're going to combine those together. Not a whole lot. Well, I say not a whole lot. There's not, it's not as exciting as maybe some of the other stories we have read as far as what he did day to day. And I'll just be truthful and upfront. This will happen from time to time as we study through the life of Christ. Some days are going to maybe feel like not a whole lot happened. And then there's going to be certain days we're not going to be able to get it all covered in the amount of time we have allotted. So uh, today will be one of those days where maybe it's not uh, quite as lengthy, but I think there is some important truths and lessons for us to learn here on days three and four of the life of Christ. These particular days are only recorded in the gospel of John. So if you'll have your Bibles, turn to John chapter number one. And before we begin reading, we're going to pick up here in verse number 29 of this chapter, and we'll go down through the end of the chapter, verse number 51, uh, just to kind of set the scene, set the scene. So what we've covered so far is Jesus went out into the wilderness to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. We studied that a few weeks ago. The next day that we studied was after there was a period of 40 days where he had been fasting in the wilderness. So he's still out in this area where John the Baptist is ministering. But for 40 days, he's in in solitude and he's fasting. And after 40 days, he has this temptation from Satan. We looked at that last week. And now what we're going to find is Jesus has come out of the wilderness. He has overcome these temptations of Satan, and he's kind of, he's beginning to kind of meet people again. And you find here that John now is going to testify about who Jesus is because he saw what happened whenever he was baptized uh, 40 days earlier or so. So let's begin looking here at uh, verse number 29 in chapter 1, and we will read down through the end of the chapter. This is days 3 and 4 of the life of Christ recorded 
The next day, John seeth, this is after this, uh, this, this um, you know, time, if we're looking at a timeline here, this is immediately after the temptation of Christ. And the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was not, for he was before me, and I knew him not. But that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come, baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. But that he sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist is saying, this is what I saw firsthand testimony whenever I baptized Jesus. I was told before this moment by the Spirit, the same Spirit that told me that I'm supposed to go out and baptize, told me that I'm going to be, it's going to be revealed unto me who the Lamb of God is when I see the Spirit descending upon him. And that's exactly what I saw whenever I baptized Jesus. Uh, verse number 35. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. So here again, you see John surrounded by some of his disciples, the, the disciples that were following John the Baptist. And Jesus walks by, and, and John the Baptist, it's almost like every time he sees Jesus now, he's kind of pointing out, hey, here's the Lamb of God. He said this multiple times now. And whenever he says this, the Bible says that the disciples that were by John the Baptist and who had been following John the Baptist begin to turn their gaze upon Jesus. And the Bible says, and they... Uh, in, uh, in verse number 37, and the, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Amen. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? And he saith unto them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Uh, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following Jesus, uh, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom, Moses, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Canst, uh, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip saith unto him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. And Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, uh, before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. And Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Amen. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I have said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, that, uh, believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Amen. So, that is days, or at least what we have recorded in scriptures. Uh, day three is whenever Jesus goes out and he calls unto him 
there's, there's an unnamed disciple that we'll talk about in a moment, uh, and Andrew, there's two there. These are those disciples that were following John the Baptist, and whenever John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, the Bible, the Bible says they, they turned and looked to Jesus and they began to follow him. So this is an unnamed, unnamed disciple, and Andrew, and the Bible says that Andrew goes and he gets his brother, Simon Peter, that's day three. Day four, the Bible says, is the next day. Uh, and that's where he finds Philip, verse number 43. And the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find a Philip and say unto him, follow me. And here again, we see that Philip um, it follows him. And then you find the story of Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel, this is commonly, to be, commonly believed to be the same disciple called Bartholomew in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here in John, he's called Nathaniel, but in the other Gospels, it's commonly believed that he's called Bartholomew and those other three. So those are the two days that we're going to be looking at today, this morning, in the life of Christ. Day three, whenever he called Andrew and this unnamed disciple along with Peter. And then the following day, we see Philip and Nathaniel. And we see the testimony of six men recorded here. It starts with this testimony of John the Baptist. And then you see the two disciples, um, Andrew, the unnamed. You see Peter, and you see Philip, and then you see Nathaniel. So you have these uh, six testimonies of these people. And the timing of their testimonies, I think, is important. These are the first kind of eyewitnesses to who Jesus is, and it's important for us. Once again, put yourself, you know, back, you know, you're living 2,000 years ago, and you get this letter from this apostle by the name of John, and he's trying to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's not an accident that John begins his story by talking about these multiple different people and their impression, their testimony of who Jesus was to them. And I think that's important for us to look at this morning. As we mentioned earlier, the first person that's mentioned here is John the Baptist. We can see his testimony in verses 29 through 34. And what is his testimony? Well, the Bible says again and again that he calls him, in verse number 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and he saith unto him, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And you see that John the Baptist repeats this message again and again, that once it's revealed to him on the day of the baptism of Jesus who he is, he begins to point people to Jesus Christ. And I think it's important the way that he did that. I think, first of all, I think it's important for us to see his commandment. He says, first of all, behold. In verse number 29, behold. He tells his disciples, stop looking at me and look at Jesus. But this word behold, it doesn't mean as in just like a passing glance. It doesn't mean as just, you know, uh, you know something that caught your eye for a moment and then you look away. This word behold, it means to look upon, to dwell upon. For this not to be just an inconsequential activity, that you should, you should behold, that you should put forth some effort, that you should labor, that you should look upon, that you should behold Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, that's the same instruction for you and I this morning, to behold Jesus Christ. Listen, I, I've been in church my entire life. I've, I've been, I can't even begin to even uh, start to number the, uh, count the number of services I've been in or the number of uh, sermons that I've listened to in church and outside of church and the number of, uh, the number of Christians that I've been around. And it's very easy for us to get complacent and to get in routine and we just begin to casually glance at Jesus instead of beholding him. To put forth some effort and think, I mean, that's why we, we have the Lord's Supper. We had the Lord's Supper here just a couple of Wednesday nights ago. And what's the purpose of that? For us not to just take a quick passing glance and, oh yeah, I know Jesus died for me. I know he died upon the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Love you. Thank you so much. But to dwell 
to behold, to think about the sacrifice that was made for my sin. That I'm a guilty party in this transaction. That I have sin that has to be accounted for. And John the Baptist tells us to behold. Don't just take a quick passing glance at religion. And that's what we have a lot of times. Boy, there are people that, uh, I mean, shame on us if we're not clear whenever we're telling people about salvation. And I, and I, can, I mean, as is, 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 is wrong as it is, it's, it's real. It happens all the time. There will be people that especially happens to younger people. They'll come down to the front of a church and, they, and they, maybe, they, maybe they even have some kind of even conviction going on. But the person dealing with them doesn't behold Jesus. They just try and run them through salvation and get them saved. Just pray this prayer after me and you can be saved. And now you have taken someone that the Holy Spirit could have worked in their life to bring them to full salvation, and you've inoculated them with a partial truth, and they won't be saved. Because we're just, we're just taking a, a little glance here and there, a little snippet here and there, and let's get, let's, we got things to do, we got places to go, and we rush through and we don't behold. To take some time and just dwell about who Jesus Christ was and what he did for us. Listen, we'll never have the love for Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it, I don't know about you, but sometimes in my heart that I pray is I just pray to say, I say, God, I don't love you the way that I need to. Would you help me to love you more? You know how you can do that as a Christian? To behold Jesus Christ. To spend a little more time considering what he did and the price that he paid. The sacrifice that he made for you and I. With nothing in return. Hey, guess what? He didn't get anything out of this. Like, I might do something for somebody because it will benefit me in the long run, you know? I'll be maybe extra courteous or extra nice or, or maybe I'll, you know, do something because I feel like there's going to be something in it for me. But there's nothing in it for God. He's taking all the pain. He's paying all the cost. And we get all the benefit to behold him. I wonder when's the last time you've beheld Jesus Christ? That it wasn't just another, we got to go to church this Sunday. It's not just another hymn we're going to sing. But to really consider the words of what you're saying and meaning with your heart and singing out of a heart of gratitude and worship and beholding him. And the truth is, if you're going to be saved, you must look to him. Well, we behold a lot of wrong things. Well, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I got baptized. Your, your baptism is good. Your baptism is an act of obedience. It's a picture. It's, a, it's an external de demonstration of a decision you made internally that you've decided to put your faith in Jesus Christ and follow him. And if you're not baptized, you should be baptized. But there's no saving power in Cole County's water treatment plant. I, I assure you of that. They're not putting anything in that water that's going to save your soul. And we behold... The, the baptism, and that can't save. We behold church. I'm a church member. My you know, great uncle was the founding charter member of this church, or whatever kind of nonsense we tell ourselves. But what did Jesus say about salvation? It's not by blood of man. You don't get saved because your father's saved. You don't get saved because your parents saved. You don't get saved because you're part of a church. We're beholding all the wrong things, and we're not beholding Jesus Christ. Boy, I think it'd be helpful for us as Christians to go back and follow the instruction of John the Baptist. Just behold him. Just think about him. Just consider him. Hold him in your heart and your mind for longer than just a few seconds. And I look, I got ADHD as bad as the next. 
You know, we're all attached to this dopamine fix of like, you know, social media and all this kind of stuff. And it's so quickly for us just to go from one thing to the next and never really consider or dwell or behold Jesus Christ. But John didn't just say to behold him. He said, behold what? The Lamb of God. And could I tell you, if you were to try and sum up the Old Testament in just a few words, the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, if you're going to try and sum it up in just a few words, here's how I would sum it up. Where is the Lamb? That's the question you find again and again and again in the Old Testament is where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb that is needed for sacrifice? And it goes back, the Bible even says, before the foundations of the world, the Bible says, He is the Lamb that was slain. So before Genesis 1-1, before in the beginning God, the Bible says before the foundations of the world, He was the Lamb that was slain. So even before the Old Testament, there was already this knowledge of a sacrifice that would have to be paid for our sins. But the Bible doesn't just talk about a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, whenever Adam and Eve disobeyed God, whenever he said, do not eat of this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says that Eve was deceived and she ate, but then Adam committed his sin knowingly and they ate of that sin and there was a price that had to be paid. And what does the Bible say? That God certainly, he judged them for their sin, but the Bible also says that he clothed them with the skins of animals. There was a sacrifice that had to be made there in the Garden of Eden. If you fast forward just a little bit in your Bible, in the book of Genesis, you'll see the story of Abraham and Isaac. And of course, if you know that story, it's a story of where uh, God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice his son. Now the Bible, if you study your Bible, you'll find out the, the Bible says Abraham knew what God would do. You know, there's a lot of criticism of of, of, this, of this story in the Bible of, you know, how could God ask somebody to kill their own son? What kind of loving God would, would, would ask someone to sacrifice their own son? But the Bible says that Abraham knew that God would find a substitute. He'd find a replacement for his son. And can I also remind you that God is the one that spared Isaac. That as Abraham was getting ready to sacrifice his son, that the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, do the, do the boy no harm because there is the sacrifice. And can I also remind you, the same God that we think is so heartless that he would ask Abraham to kill his son. Can I tell you, he sacrificed his own son and he didn't spare his son for you and I? See, this story of the Old Testament is the story of the lamb that comes and appears again and again. But not just even whenever there's a substitute for Isaac, but also the Passover. The story of whenever the Israelites were being freed from slavery, being in bondage for 400 years in slavery. And here again, I think it just as, as, as students of the Bible, we don't, we don't consider and think about that long enough. We get super critical of their behavior, don't we, of, the, of the, 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 the Israelites that got freed from slavery and they're in the wilderness and they're disobedient to for God and they're always complaining and crying. And for 40 years they died in the wilderness. And we're very critical of them and certainly there's, there's certainly no shortage of opportunity to be critical of them. But they had been in slavery for 400 years. We, even to this day in America, we're dealing with the consequences of slavery in America. To this day, we're dealing with that. And how long was that slavery? It wasn't even 200 years. I'm talking about you, you don't go through that without taking some things out of it, some extra baggage along the way. And these children of Israel were being taken out of captivity, and God said, I want to, I want to commemorate this moment with a Passover meal. And part of that Passover meal was they had to go out and they had to find a lamb. 
And it had to have a certain characteristics. It couldn't have any blemishes. It couldn't be deformed. It couldn't have any spots. It had to be pure white. It had to be healthy. And they actually had to take it and observe it for several days to make sure it couldn't, there wasn't like some kind of, you know, hidden ailment or something of that nature. And they would sacrifice this lamb on the day of Passover. And this was a, a symbol of the price that was to be paid for salvation for all of us. Because the truth is we're all under the bondage of slavery born into this world. We're all born into the bondage of slavery, but a, a sacrifice has been made. And then certainly as you read through the Old Testament, you find that the Bible says that every day, every day, two lambs had to be slain every day in the temple, every day. Now, there was more than that that was brought, but at a minimum, every day, the, the, the priest alone had to sacrifice two lambs every single day. And then there was one day called the Day of Atonement. This was a special day where there was a special offering that was made. And these animals were sacrificed, and they would go into the Holy of Holies, and they would apply the blood under the mercy seat of God. And the, and the question in the Old Testament again and again and again is, where is the lamb? Yeah. And John the Baptist says, behold, here is the lamb. And not a lamb that you could produce, Amen. because all of our lambs that we produce fall short. None of them are sufficient. None of them can do the job. I don't care how, how healthy that lamb is or how clean that lamb is or how without spot or blemish that lamb is. None of our lambs are sufficient for what needs to happen. God said, I have to provide my own lamb for this fallen world. And so you find that John the Baptist calls out to behold the lamb of God. And that mankind has never been able, of our own ability, our own will, to produce a sacrifice acceptable to God. Even in the Old Testament, uh, when the priest would sacrifice those lambs, that was still not sufficient because all that, all that sacrifice could do was cover up your sin. It couldn't take it away. That's what the atonement means. It means the covering. That's what it means. On the Day of Atonement, the sins of the nation would be covered. But let me tell you, I, I know this firsthand as a kid, you can only cram so much stuff in your closet before it starts falling out. You can only bury so much stuff under the rug before it starts making a, a mound, a molehill in the middle of your rug. You can only cover your sin for so long. But God doesn't cover our sin with the Lamb of God. He removes our sin. The Bible says He takes our sin and He removes it as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says he takes our sin and he puts it in the depths of the sea. And I've heard an old preacher say, and he puts up a no fishing sign after he's done. <laughs> Your sins are not covered. They are removed. They're gone. The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And what does he do? He's coming to take away the sins of the world. Take them away. The, the, uh, if you read the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, you find the story of Christian. And what is his moment of salvation? It's whenever that burden of sin is finally removed. I'm not sure what your salvation experience was like whenever God was dealing with you about your sinful condition and the fact that you needed a Savior, that you could not save yourself. But I can recall I was, you know, uh, ballpark, I was 12, 13, something about ballpark age. I don't remember the exa exactly how old I was. But I had been raised in church my whole life. I had made professions of faith before. I had, I had accepted Christ because I knew this was what my parents wanted me to do, and it would make them happy if I did it. And so I accepted Christ as my Savior, made a profession of faith as a young person, but there was no genuine conviction there. But I went to church. At a, it was a Wednesday night, and there was a youth activity, and the preacher that night was preaching out of the book of James, and he read that scripture where it says that even the devils know the truth and tremble. Yeah. And 
And up to that point, I just thought salvation was just like that. I knew that Jesus was real, and I knew that he died for me, and I knew that he, that he, that he rose again, and that I, that I believed in him, and I thought salvation was just about what I knew. But the Bible corrected me and it let me understand that salvation is not a matter of just what you know, because even the devils know. They know more than you and I. And knowledge wouldn't save me. And so that I began on this journey of every night before I would go to bed, I would say, God, if I'm not saved, would you save me? And the next night I'd say, God, if I'm not saved, would you save me? No one good and well, no one good and well, I wasn't saved. God, if, 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 it, if it didn't work last night, would it work tonight? God, if my prayer last night didn't reach heaven, would it reach tonight? And every night I prayed that prayer, knowing good and well I was lost and going to hell. Because I didn't have my faith in Jesus. I thought I was still a good kid. Raising a Christian home. But I needed to repent. And this is what I needed to repent of. I didn't need to repent of some evil, dicked, uh, evil, wicked, dark sin, although I certainly had dark sins in my life. I needed to repent of my religion, of my good works of thinking I was good enough to get myself to heaven. That's what I needed to repent of. I needed to come to God and set aside my pride and say, I'm not good enough. I can't make it to heaven on my own. I'm only going to go to heaven if you take me, God. That's the only way I'm getting there. You see, our lambs aren't good enough. Our lambs of religion and service and all the things that we do to try and make ourselves feel morally good, those lambs aren't sufficient. Only he can take away that burden. That burden of sin, of conviction that we feel whenever we're not obedient to God. And then what does he say here? Behold, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. See, uh, well, I'm going to be going to, uh, I, I, we, uh, yesterday we got to do our annual uh, training at Algoa. So we got to spend several hours in the prison yesterday going through all of our training and I'll be going back tonight and we'll be preaching. And I use this example, I use this example to those prisoners because it, it, it makes sense to them. It's, it's easy for them to understand that whenever, whenever God came to take away the sins of the world, it wasn't just a matter that he was willing, although he's willing. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, the Bible says. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I'm so thankful that God is willing to do that. Uh, I'm thankful that, that, that God is ready. He says, behold, now is the day of salvation. You can be saved today. You don't have to wait for tomorrow. You don't have to wait for some special day down the road. You can get saved at any time. Matter of fact, the Bible says right now, behold, today is the day of salvation. God is willing to save right now. He's ready. But he's not just willing. He's not just ready. He's able. He's capable. That the sacrifice he makes can actually do the job. So when I talk to the guys in prison, I tell them, listen, you guys are going to, you, either you already have or you will be going before a judge who is able to set you free. He has the authority. He has the power. By our government, they get this, put this person in this position as a judge, and he can set forth a ruling, a judgment, and he can say if he decides that I can pardon this person, I can set this person free. The problem is most of the time the judges are not willing to do that. They're able, but they're not willing. And you may be, so you may meet some people talking about guys in prison. You may meet some guys that they want you to be free. They're willing for you to be free, but they don't have the capability to do it. But God is not only capable, and not only is he able and ready, but he's willing to do it. To take away the sins of the world. To take away our sins personally 
and to give us forgiveness. That his, his sacrifice was acceptable, it was sufficient, and it was capable to take away the sins of the world. Not only in this story do we see the story of John the Baptist, but we see Jesus begin to call to him some of his disciples. Now, we're going to read again here in a few weeks another story where Jesus is calling more disciples. These are two separate events. This one takes place immediately while he's still out in the wilderness, and then he goes to Galilee. The next stories we'll be reading are in a different, uh, a different area, so these are two separate days. But here we have this first day, he begins to call the disciples. And the first that he calls, um, here we see in verse number 35, again the next day, after John stood speaking about John the Baptist, and two of his disciples, so we have two disciples here, and John the Baptist looking upon Jesus as he walks, he says, behold again, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? And he saith unto them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt in the boat with him that day. Uh, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two which heard him speak, John, which heard John speak and followed, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So, we have two disciples. One of them is uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The other one is not named, but it's, it's commonly believed this is John himself, John the Apostle. Not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle. And the reason for that is, first of all, if you read through the Gospel of John, he never mentions his name. Right. If you recall, there's a story where they're running to the tomb the next morning on Resurrection Sunday, and the Bible says that uh, one of the disciples, not Peter, made his, makes it to the uh, tomb first. This is a way in which people would write back in those days, you know, there was a, you know, a, a view of kind of humility, of like, I'm not making myself the center of the story. I, I won't even use my name in writing this story. But there are some very specific details that are recorded that really only you would know if you were there. Like, he knows the exact hour of the day whenever this happened. So whoever, whoever was the other person, either they told John firsthand or it was John himself exactly what happened. I, once again, I think it's pretty safe as, uh, as us Bible believers to think this is John the Apostle um, in this portion of Scripture. But you find that Jesus comes to, let's just say, John and Andrew. And John is unnamed, uh, but we see his, his uh, activities recorded. And what were their activities? Whenever these two disciples heard what John the Baptist said, they came to Jesus. And Jesus turns back and he says unto them, what seek ye? And what a great question for us to ask whenever it comes to why are we following Jesus? What are we seeking? What, what, is, what is our motivation? Why are we here this morning? Why did you get out of bed a little bit early to come to Sunday school? Whenever a lot of people are just going to come for Sunday service, or some of you going to come back tonight, or some of you are going to go do other religious kind of behaviors and activities and work in different ministries. Why are we doing that? What are we seeking? What an important question for us to answer. Because there are a lot of people that they're seeking and they're following even Jesus, but it's for all the wrong reasons. Whenever Jesus, uh, we'll, we'll look about it here. We'll look at it here in a few weeks when he's preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount. In, in the it's recorded in the Book of Matthew, uh, chapters five, six, and seven. He even tells them most people are deceived. Most people are going to hell. That's what Jesus said. He said, "Broad is the way, and wide is the gate, and many there be that go in thereat." But straight is the way, and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Jesus said most people are deceived. Most people are headed to hell, and they don't realize it. 
And so it was the very first thing that Jesus says to these disciples, why are you following me? What are you seeking? Are you looking for just a free lunch? Because you can get a free lunch following Jesus. Are you looking for personal prestige? Are you looking to be right and prove other people wrong? Or are you just following me? And what's their response? Now, there's some debate here on their response here. And he says, what are you seeking and what's their response? And they say, Rabbi, which is master, where dwellest thou? So there's some thought here that maybe their, their response was, maybe it was a way of saying, well, okay, maybe you're too busy to, to talk with us right now, but tell us where you live, we'll come meet with you later. But, but perhaps maybe Jesus sees that their desire is just to be close to him, to stay with him. And so he says, well, come and see. Come and see where I live. Come and see what I'm about. Come and see the kind of master that I am. And after they abode with him, him that day, uh, that morning, it says it was about the 10th hour. And then one of the two which heard John the Baptist speak and followed him, Simon Peter, uh, was Simon Peter's brother Andrew. And he findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah. So the first testimony we have is John the Baptist. He's called the Lamb of God. The second testimony we have here is from Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he's called the Messiah. What's the Messiah? That means the anointed one. So back in the Old Testament, when there'd be a new king or there'd be a new prophet, they would anoint them with oil. And so this was a word they would use for an anointing. But the Messiah was even a more special word because it meant the sanctified one, the special one, the only one. It's actually the word Christ that you would find in the New Testament. So it's interesting, the name Jesus Christ itself, Jesus, comes from, it's the same word as Joshua in Hebrew, and it means Savior. That's what the word Joshua or Jesus means, Savior. Christ, it means the anointed, special, or only one. So his name itself, Jesus Christ, means Jesus, your Savior. He's the only one. He's the only way you're going to get salvation. His name itself tells us itself that he is our only path for salvation, that he's the Messiah, the anointed one. And then we see the story of where Peter comes to him in verse number 41. And he findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when, he, and when he beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. And here we see a prophecy that Jesus gives to Peter that he says, You may be unstable now, and certainly he was. If you look at the life of Peter, he was someone that was impulsive. He was someone that was kind of ruled by his desires, his emotions. He, you know, the way it's been described time and time again is he would talk before he would think. And there were many times that he'd end up with his foot in his mouth because he was just a very impulsive, responsive, unstable person. But Jesus says, whenever the Holy Spirit's done with you, you'll become a stone. You'll become rock solid. And he was certainly a, fo a foundational part of the, uh, of the New Testament church there. So we see the story of John, who's unnamed here, the story of Andrew. Interesting, Andrew, if you look at his life, you'll always find Andrew, every time he's recorded, bringing people to Jesus. Here we find that he brings his, his brother uh, Peter to Jesus. It is Andrew is the one that finds the lad with the fishes and the loaves. It's Andrew that did that. It's Andrew that brings that lad to Jesus. And then if you look, I think it's John chapter 12, there are Greeks that have come and they want to meet Jesus. And it's Andrew that takes these Greek people to Jesus as well. So you find time and time again, the testimony, the story of Andrew is this. He's bringing people to Jesus. And certainly what a good example for us that if we want to, uh, if we want to do great things for God, just continue to bring people to Jesus. Just continue to bring people to Jesus as Andrew did here. 
And then we find here in verses 43 through the end of the chapter uh, where Jesus began, he approaches Philip and Nathanael. And uh, in verse number 43, in the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip. And he saith to him, follow me. Now we don't know all the context here. This is uh, in reading other gospels, we'll find this is not the first time that Jesus ever met Philip, but we find him calling him to follow him in this portion of scripture. And Philip immediately uh, begins to follow. And now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom uh, Moses and the law of the prophets did write Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip saith unto him, Come and see. I think it's interesting that he used the exact same words that Jesus did. Whenever, whenever the disciples uh, came to Jesus and said, Hey, uh, where are you going? And he says, Come and see. And now we see the same in invitation is given here to Nathanael. And Jesus saw Nathanael, verse number 47, coming to him and said, Indeed, I'm sorry, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. And if Nathanael saith unto him, Once knowest thou me? And Jesus answered unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. And so now we have this kind of interesting story. I don't know about you when I read this. I kind of I have more questions than answers, it seems like. But Jesus sees Nathanael coming, and he says, Behold, here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And that word there, it means there's no deception. There's no trickery that is one of these kind of, you know, you, what you see is what you get. That's kind of how Nathaniel was. Um, but then it kind of goes on the story where, uh, where Jesus says, hey, I saw whenever you were studying under the fig tree. And Nathaniel, whenever he hears this, his response is this, this dramatic. At verse number 49, Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. So now we have another testimony. He's been called the Lamb of God. He's been called the Messiah. He's been called the, he's the fulfillment in verse number 45 of Philip. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets and law. And now we see that Nathaniel calls him, Thou art the King of Israel and the Son of God. And, and what caused Nathaniel to say that? Because he said, You saw me reading under a fig tree. I don't know about you, but I just, I'm like, Okay, what's going on? I don't understand this. That doesn't make it. seems like a pretty small thing. That would have made somebody say, wow, you are the king of Israel, the son of God, because you saw me under a fig tree. Uh, I was studying this a little bit, a couple of things I came across that maybe might be helpful. Uh, it kind of really all attaches itself to the very introduction that Jesus had with Nathaniel. The very first thing he said was, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. What's that word guile mean? It means to be deceptive or to be, trick, to be a, trick, a trickster. You know, there's an Old Testament a saint that we read about whose name meant to be a deceiver or a trickster. You guys remember the story? A couple of twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And what was Jacob's name? His name Jacob, it actually means to be deceptive, to be tricky, to be a trickster. So whenever, whenever Jesus sees Nathaniel coming, he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, there's no deception, there's no trickery. There are, in some Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, that word is not actually even guile. It actually has Jacob's name there. Behold an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. There's no deception with this one. He's honest. He's true. So what about this reading under a fig tree? Well, I was studying this, and this was a common figure of speech. Now, it could be that this is talking about a literal moment where Jesus saw Nathaniel under a fig tree, and he was just there, and he saw him. 
But there was a common figure of speech that was used back in those days. They would say, if you were a priest or a rabbi or a scribe and you were going to go study the word of God, it was called uh, being under the fig tree. And the reason for that was in Psalms chapter 1, it's believed, you guys know, I'm Psalms chapter 1, you'd be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, you know, that whole thing. There's a belief that that's talking about a fig tree. So whenever you're studying the word of God, it's almost, and that's what Psalms 1 is all about. It's about the word of God, the blessed man who, who, who studies and loves the word of God. You would say, I'm going to go under the fig tree. That means I'm going to go study. So let's just kind of put this together. Perhaps, perhaps Nathaniel was actually studying the story of Jacob. Perhaps that was the passage of scripture he was reading that day. And he was studying under the fig tree, so to speak. And whenever he sees Jesus, Jesus begins to reveal to him, to tell him, hey, that story you were just reading, I'm the fulfillment of it. How do you know that? Let's continue to read. Verse number 50, Jesus answered and said unto him, because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, thou believest me, or thou believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. And what does he reference here? And he saith unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. If you know the story of Jacob, he wrestles with with uh, appearance of God himself in the flesh. And what is Jacob? Uh, J- he sees the ladder, doesn't he? Jacob's ladder of angels ascending and descending. So my point here is perhaps what blew Nathaniel away was not that he realized somebody watched him under a physical fig tree, but perhaps he was studying that portion of scripture that day. And Jesus says, hey, I know what you're reading because I am the word. And he was able to even incorporate the story that Nathaniel had read earlier that day into his response to him. The point of whether it happened literally where he was under a fig tree or this is talking about what he was studying in the scripture earlier that day, the fact remains it had a profound impact upon Nathaniel. Very similar to that story of the woman at the well that whenever she went back into her town, what did she say about Jesus? He told me all things ever I did. Now, if you go back and look at their interaction, he didn't tell her all things. He just talked about her sin, but it was such a profound impact upon her. She said, he told me all things. And here Nathaniel, with just the smallest interaction with Jesus, saying he saw me under a fig tree, he's able to testify and confirm, this is the king of Israel. This is the son of God. And then Jesus finally says here, not just the son of God, but he says in verse number 51, the son of man. So very quickly, the very first few days of his ministry, Jesus has testimony from John the Baptist from Andrew, from John the Apostle, from Peter, from Nathaniel, from Philip, that he's the Lamb of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the King of Israel, that he's the Son of God, and he's the Son of Man, all within the first couple of days of his life. How many more testimonies do we have to have before we will believe? And so here we see days three and four recorded in scriptures. So next week we will pick up again where we begin the study of the first miracle that Jesus performed, turning the water into wine at the marriage supper in Canaan, and we'll study that next week, all right? Anybody have anything else this morning before we dismiss? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time you've given us. Once again, we do pray for the service to come, that you would use our pastor in a great way, Lord, you prepare our hearts. Lord, this morning I pray you'd give us a spirit of unity, of love. Uh, Lord, this morning we would just take time to behold Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We'll give you all the praise and glory for it, Christ, and we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.